what's more exciting to me than any one food is not ever running out of wild food. And that is the bigger work. This is episode 30 with Daniel Vitalis on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Did you know that some scientists say that oaks produce more nuts annually than every other nut tree, both wild and commercial, combined? Nuts, right? (laughs) Yeah, laugh it up. That pun was intended, but seriously, guys, acorns or oak nuts are nutritional powerhouses. Depending on the species, a single acorn can contain up to 18% fat. 6% protein, and 68% carbohydrate, with the rest just being water, minerals, and gut-healthy fiber. Acorns are also great sources of both vitamins A and C, as well as having a long list of essential and non-essential amino acids. And with those numbers, guys, it's easy to understand why the native people here in California never resorted to agriculture and why, interestingly, they never spoke of or created traditions for famine. To speak more about this abundant wild food, I'm really, really excited to introduce to you someone I've mentioned many, many times to the Ancestral Health Radio tribe, and that is Daniel Vitalis. I waited for what seemed like a couple years for this interview, guys, which, by the way, is a solid two hours. So I decided to break it up into a two-part episode so your ears can have something to munch on for later. Daniel's helped me, as well as many of my friends, better understand ecology through ancestral lifeways. So in today's episode, you'll learn why Daniel says he no longer has a morning routine, the wild food Daniel believes is going to revolutionize food production, hint, it is not a grain, why Daniel's use of technology scares him, and why technology should scare you too, and much, much more. Daniel Vitalis host of the Rewild Yourself podcast and founder of SirThrival.com, is a writer, public speaker, entrepreneur, and lifestyle pioneer in the sphere of human health, personal development, and strategic living. He's especially interested in the meeting place of ancestral health and lifestyle design. Daniel can be seen in the documentary film Hungry for Change and has been featured in the Huffington Post, RT, Marie Claire Magazine, as well as countless other interviews and media appearances. He can be found at danielvitalis.com. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, man, for joining myself and the tribe on this very special episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Well, I'm really happy to be here, man. And I'm glad, I'm glad that you considered a special episode. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Just like I was talking to you previously to hitting record, that you've been a huge inspiration to me. And I'm excited for this episode because it's going to be like humanizing you, you know? So, I mean, you're human, <laughs> but I mean, for people who are, you know, like- I have, a, I have an aloof way of interacting with the public. I, yes. I know I do that. And, and I know that with some folks like, it's unpopular to do to do that, especially in like the social media context, which is supposed to be very intimate. But you know, I'm also trying. It's like trying to manage also doing the things that I talk about means that I can't always. Be. Yeah, so I understand what you mean by that, uh, and it kind of makes me smile. And um, if I can humanize a little bit, that's fantastic. But I kind of like look at. 
I sort of look at the work and I think like, it's not about me anyway. It's like, I don't want to be too, you know, like I'm not trying to personalize it too much as much as I want to create. Do you ever, you ever see the last Batman series? You mean with Christian Bale? Correct. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Do you remember that scene? He's on a plane. He's on his like private plane and he's decided he's going to do this Batman thing, but he, well, he hasn't decided on the Batman thing. He's just decided that he's like, it's important to not be a man. He says, I need to be a symbol. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like a very impactful idea to me because you know, I, all of us who do public work, we have a personal life that over time becomes a different thing than our public life. It just does. And I don't, a lot of people will be like, well, you should integrate. I don't think that's healthy. It's like, "Mm, this just happens. You don't share your day to day to day to day to day stuff, the mundane details of your life publicly. You know, there's like all this stuff. I got to go put gas in my car. I got to, you know, like I got to pay the bills, like those kind of things, you know, you leave that out. And I think what ends up happening is we, we put out a sort of symbolic idea of ourselves to mm-hmm. the world. And I think it's important that to some degree that we do that conscientiously. Uh, but I, at the same time, yeah, I understand about humanizing <laughs> and how important that is too. And there's just a lot of questions. For example, like I know that you are a very disciplined individual. You run a company, probably have a lot of systems and routines. And I've gotten requests from people who are interested in just learning about some of those mundane things. For example, I remember an episode that you had on the Rewild Yourself podcast where you were like, I eat fish, chicken, beef, um, you know, or wild game or whatever in this order. And I do it like this all the time. I know you're a fan of getting things done. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, right? So you have a lot of systems to help make sure that everything runs smoothly. And I know that those are some of the details that some people are right. interested in. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let, let me just say though too, you know, in fairness, because another thing that's happened, you know, this phenomena we have where it's like actors and, and uh, you know, like literally like actors, like people who pretend to be other people for a living, like actors, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I respect the craft, but I think that craft has gotten way ahead of itself. Um, and similar to sports stars who are like, these are athletes, yet they've somehow gotten positioned as political commentators, right? And it's like, and position themselves as p- political commentators. So some are thrust into that place and others, others claw their way to that place. Uh, but neither are really like, they're out of their lane. They're not really fit for what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and yet we give incredible credence to the things that they're saying um, and, and their outrageous biases and their aloof positions that they have, um, you know, that inform their, their ideas about the world. So that said, I'm a, um, I speak on the idea of ancestral health and I, I speak on the idea of hunting and gathering and foraging and rewilding in the modern world. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not somebody who teaches about success or entrepreneurialism or uh, business building or even the systems that help to do that. Now I have some and I have done a lot of that and that, mm-hmm. that is the, the backbone of the media outreach that I'm able to do. But I just want to be clear, like as we talk about these things, I'm like a, uh, like a dysfunctional, you know, entrepreneur in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm not the, not the person, like I, I don't write books on that and I don't speak on that publicly because that's not like, 
I, while I have systems that have allowed me to do that, I don't want to give the impression that I think that the way that I do is the way that anybody else should do it. Right. Uh, because a lot of my systems aren't, aren't as good as they could be or aren't as good as some of the folks who are out there on circuit talking about those things. So I'm happy to go into some of that, but that's why I don't, you know, go deeper into those things because, you know, my journey through this stuff hasn't been always well informed and I've learned, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a decade into what I do. So I've, my systems have gotten better. Uh, but a lot of it's through pain, James. A lot of it's through pain. <laughs> oh, I, I feel you, brother. Yeah. So, you know, you, it's like looking at somebody with a really scarred up face and scarred up set of hands and being like, what's your, what's your beauty regimen? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, you know what? I feel like somebody who has a lot of scars and things like that, well, you know what? They've got a, they've got a pretty big story to tell also, yeah. yep, you know, you know, and it's, again, it's, we don't have to go deep or anything like that, but you know, how about we start off like this? What lay it on me? <laughs> I mean, real simple. I mean, what just what does an average day look like for you? It depends on the time of year and it depends on the day so much, right? So I'll, let's just talk about this week. Like a lot of my days this week are, are getting up in the morning and writing. I mean, I, you know, you see like, for instance, I'm a, again, why I'm probably not the entrepreneurial model on. It's like, look at my, I don't know if you follow my Instagram feed at all, but I'm not known for brevity. <laughs> you know, I write a lot and uh, I write long posts and they're thought out. Right now I'm working on my acorn, uh, how to eat an acorn course with uh, Chef Frankie Giglio. And, you know, I've written, you know, a 15,000 word document for that. And that's a lot of editing every morning, every day. I try to get out at least every day. Uh, so like yesterday, for instance, first thing in the morning was out hunting and gathering. And uh, I had to prioritize that first thing in the morning. So it, it just depends a lot. Things aren't, um, a lot of people want to know, like, what's your morning routine? It's like one of the most common questions. I'm sure you'll get it too, or if you aren't already. Oh, I've gotten um, it. <laughs> right? You get that all the time. Like, what's your morning routine? Um, I don't really have one anymore. There was times in my life where I did, but now that I'm doing this hunting and gathering as such a big part of my lifestyle. Mm. it's really difficult to pin that down because it's like, what's my morning routine during deer season? A lot of times it's out of bed at three 30 in the morning to get outside naked and put on the clothes that I've had hanging outside to, you know, remove their scent to get into my tree stand. Right. You know, it's not like get up and I do 50 push ups and I drink a kale smoothie. Cause like, I don't have time for that. Right. So it, de it just depends on the day. So I tend to shy away from those, like what's your average day look like? Mm -hmm. You know, I have created a life where, um, I work from home and all of my uh, staff works from home too. So we don't have a central office in my company, Sir Thrival, or with the media outreach that uh, is the Rewild Yourself podcast or my social media. Um, and all that, of course, takes a team, but I've built a business that's really slick and that's been important to me. And when I say slick, I mean, we can operate from anywhere at any time as long as we have, you know, internet and some kind of terminal. So that's, you know, I work at home and I live in Maine, which while I'm not in a particularly rural part of Maine, I'm in Maine, which is rural compared to a lot of standards. So mm -hmm. uh, I live in a, you know, I live largely at home alone. Uh, my partner's Canadian. So she's only down on the weekends uh, as we work through a, sort of a visa process for her to be down here oh, okay. with me more full time. So uh, something you and I were talking about pre-recording was just sort of, and I don't like this term lone wolf because I don't think there's such a thing as a lone wolf. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they're not a fish fusion animal that breaks off and lives alone. They're a pack-oriented animal. So maybe like lone coyote would be more appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am definitely kind of a loner and always I have been. Um, so, you know, I, I 
primarily spend my days, you know, with myself doing the things that uh, either further my work outreach, further my personal goals, um, you know, or further the sort of lifestyle, uh, you know, that I, that I'm promoting. Uh, but you know, I just don't have like a standard routine things that are in my, how how about that? Some things are in my day every day. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, another good one might be like, you know, what are some of your personal rules, quote unquote, that perhaps you never break, you know, like maybe you don't have a set routine or anything like that because it evolves and it changes with the season, of course, but maybe you have some personal rules that you abide by that you yourself may never break. <laughs> Man, I just don't, I just don't have those. It's funny that, um, I, I think like the first half of my career was really, uh, informed by a lot of those kind of rules mm-hmm. and you know, this idea of like 10,000 hours, right? You're familiar with that kind of concept? Like, oh, absolutely. Mastery. Okay. Well, I don't want to give the impression of having any kind of mastery, but, but after a time, um, a lot of the rules cease to be rules. You know what I mean? They become very like easily broken um, because you understand them at a higher level. So I just don't have a lot of those kind of rules. There's a lot of things that fit in my daily life. Like I drink a lot of clean, fresh spring water. I use mm-hmm. my sauna. I take a lot of very hot baths. You know, I very rarely sleep without a window open. I guess that's the kind of stuff you mean. Like I have a yeah. lot of those. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, those are, know, I just, I just hate, I just hesitate to give rules because like I <laughs> well, can think of so many examples where I break them. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know what? Like, for example, you also said something in another previous podcast where I heard you mention that you prefer to light your fire with a bow drill. Maybe you can share some other practical ways that you like incorporating, for example, some of your primitive skills into your daily life. Man, again, it's like a thing that I like to do that and I like to do it with a hand drill too, but I just don't always do that. Right. And so it's like, I just don't want to give that. I don't want to give that kind of an impression, you know, that it's right. And you don't have to, I mean, is there, I mean, but we all aspire to do certain things. I mean, are there any primitive skills? How about, about, let me, let me, let me say that. Let me, I'd rather say this. Okay. Right now, like last night, I spent a big part of my evening cutting deer because Mm -hmm. I, I harvested two deer a couple weeks ago and they've been sitting on ice since then. Okay. And for me, like, that that is like going to be a, a major process, right? Cutting those deer, right. getting them broken down, getting them frozen, you know, put away for the winter. It's like a big part of my life. So I'm not like in some kind, I'm not like trying to do all of these different, I don't have like a list where I'm like, I got to work in my bow drill and I got to go pound something with stones and then I got to scrape a hide. It's like the stuff that I'm doing takes my whole day, James. Like if you take a look through sort of my my Instagram or my Facebook feed and you see the amount of food that I'm processing, there's like very little space in my, in my life for like, for, for doing skills where they don't actually, where I don't need them, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. right, right now what I'm focused on is butchering. That's a okay. that's, that's the focus. Mm-hmm. And this morning, for instance, like wringing out acorn flour and getting it into the oven to dry. Like those are, those have been more my priorities this morning, if you will, like things that I need to do to keep things rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's more about like, what do I have to do to continue uh, feeding myself this way and to continue my pursuit on the landscape. And it's just this ever changing, ever evolving thing. And a lot of the practices that I did five years ago, I did because I didn't have hunting and gathering for me is, is something I've only been doing in at this serious level for just 
two, almost three years now mm-hmm. that, that it's been like the, that it's been like my most significant way that I get my calories, right? That's new to me. So I've had exposure to it and I've been foraging a long time and it was mostly a novelty to me. Now, right. back then I had all this spare time to be like, okay, I get up in the morning and I drink my water and then I do my movement routine and then I drink my smoothie and then I go in the sauna and then I, you know, and I, ha- I had like the space for all those kind of things. But now the, the thing about, here's the thing, like a lot, a lot of people who are listening to this are going to probably um, have the desire, the passion, the interest, or the opportunity to go out and make like hunting and gathering their main focus of their life, right? Like that's a, a kind of an obscure lifestyle, but boy, boy, does it carve bullshit out of your life? Like nothing else, like nothing else, James, because you just can't be involved in like masturbatory pursuits as much because there doesn't leave space or time for it. So the processing of food, which is very, I do in very modern ways, but is a very ancestral practice. Mm-hmm. It takes precedent over so many other things because it's like those acorns got to get washed. They got to get dried. They got to get cracked. They got to get ground to flour. They got to get leached. That deer's got to get broken down. It's got to get boned out. It's got to get trimmed. It's got to get butchered down. It's got to get frozen. Those fish have to get scaled or skinned or cut or filleted or whatever it is. Just a, it's like a constant practice. So it's um. So I think a lot of the things people assume that I'm doing all day have changed so dramatically in the last few years mm-hmm. uh, because these practices have absolutely changed what I do with my day-to-day and how I use my time, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Let's move on to your hunting and foraging then. Do you have a favorite foraging season? Wow. I mean, from basically from maple syrup until now, I would say, because it's like the, the season begins first thing in the spring. And we still have a lot of snow on the ground here. So when we start to tap our maple trees, which I would consider the beginning of the foraging season for me, because that's the first thing that I can forage. If you consider, you know, gathering sap from trees, foraging, and it goes right up until now. And, and honestly, it'll continue on right through the winter. Cause if you, you know, if we're using foraging in its broad and, and technical sense, which encompasses, you know, gathering animals as and hunting animals and fishing and such. Uh, it'll really go all year. So no, I don't have a favorite season. I just, like I said, I'm trying, I just try to keep up with it. For me, this is a sort of insight, I guess, personally into how I approach things. I tend to uh, get interested in a topic that's a bit obscure. I like to promote that idea and, and make it a little less marginalized, at least to our community. I mean, my reach is, is not huge, right? But, but to our community. And once I see that people are t- taking it on, I typically leave it to folks to explore and then I move on to something else. Does that make sense? So, so I, right now it's like the, the, a lot of the things that you were sort of asking me about before Mm -hmm. are things that I'm kind of like leaving other people to explore. I feel like I've said enough about them. You know what I mean? And right now what I'm trying to do is, is demonstrate that in the Anthropocene era on the earth, that's the, that's the, uh, one of the names that's been chosen for the current geological era. Um, and the, like we've just come out of the Pleistocene. That was the last ice age era. And we're in this thing now called the Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene refers to the time in earth's history where the surface of the earth has been geologically altered by human activity. So mm-hmm. hence the Anthro and Anthropocene. So, we know that we know what hunting and gathering looked like in the Pleistocene from, you know, what we've been able to piece together from archaeological evidence. 
and we know what it looked like all the way up until sort of the industrial revolution. But after that time, it became so marginalized because there were so few, and there, and there are some people today who's, it'd be hard to say there's like true hunter gatherers anymore. I mean, there are folks who practice or trying to hold on to a traditional life way in parts of the earth. Mm-hmm. What has not been demonstrated very effectively yet, though I don't mean to claim a monopoly on this. There's so many people doing it and it's, and, and, and in specialized, specialized fields so much more than I'll probably ever do it. Uh, in other words, there are hunters who are so far beyond where a man my age who's a new hunter is ever going to make it to. Right. And there are foragers, you know, Arthur Haynes, a great example of a guy. I'll just, I'll never be foraging at the level. I'll never have his level of botanical insight and specialization. Right. But what I think where I see a, a vacuum and where I th- am excited by the idea of our community moving toward or exploring, or, or at least some of our community, is this idea of what does modern people hunting gathering in the Anthropocene era look like? It's unexplored territory. We don't know. What does it look like to hunt and gather in an era where um, most land is private? What does it look like in an era when uh, invasive species have been uh, moved around the globe by people? So it's, I don't mean invader, like they put on camouflage, grab guns and, you know, attacked, but, but where we've, we've spread them all over the place. What does it look like then? What's it look like in an era when um, so much soil, air and water is heavily polluted and you have the ability to actually self pollute worse in some cases by hunting and gathering than by eating farmed food. Um, well, you know, what, what does it look like? What, what are the tools? What are the techniques? What are the things that somebody needs to learn, especially if they want to fast track, um, to go from an agricultural diet to a wild one? I mean, this is just stuff that I am deeply, deeply interested and fascinated by currently. And so it's hard for me to talk about things that I was, you know, that were big rules for me or super interesting to me many years ago, because, it's just not where my head's at today. Where my head's at right now is just trying to keep up with all these practices. And, and, and to say that I have a favorite season is like, I love them all, man. Because all, of <laughs> I feel food, you. I all know. these foods are amazing, right? Yeah. It's like so much to do. And so well, I get excited about every season that's coming. Do you have a favorite wild food? You know, I have several that I really, really like. No, I, I don't, man. I mean, it's like, I love acorns. They're so awesome. I mean, when I think about acorns, I think like, this is the this is an opportunity to really revolutionize food production. I mean, where what other food is there that is so abundant, that's so available to so many of like when we talk about the modern world, we are not just talking about the temperate zone of the earth, but a lot of modern people fall into the temperate zone where oaks live and thrive, 600 plus species of oak and producing these acorns that have been an ancestral food all through history. I mean, not just in recent history, but all the way back into the archaeological record, anywhere that they've had there, anywhere there's been oaks, there have been people eating acorns. And then just sort of suddenly we stop. And then we develop this idea that acorns are beneath us and that grains are more important. And, and of course, the word acorn is made of two parts, a, a prefix, and corn. And corn is a generic word for grain that has only recently been applied to maize. So now we say corn, we mean maize, but traditionally corn referred to any local grain that people were growing. And a means not or without. Uh, So essentially acorn means not a grain. Uh, And I just think in in light of what we've, what the paleo community is um, 
I guess what the paleo community has, uh, has gifted us is this like ability to look more critically at grains. I don't think that we need to take this approach that all grains are bad or we shouldn't eat grains, but, right. but it's certainly insightful to, to start to pay attention to the roles that grains have played, especially in the civilizing of the world, because grains have been the, you know, it's grasses that have fueled all the civilizations thus far that we know about. So, so I think acorns are exciting, but I think maple syrup is exciting. I think hunting is just absolutely and ridiculously exciting. I love fishing. I love the berry seasons, blueberries and cranberries and cherries and all these amazing fruits. I mean, our leek season, our spring greens, I, lo- I lo- just, it's all exciting. And what's more exciting to me than any one food is not ever running out of wild food. And that is the bigger work because, because this is what I've noticed, James, a lot of people, okay, like there's a difference between foraging and being a subsistence forager. Oh, absolutely. Right. And so I think that there's a tendency to be like, oh yeah, I love wild food, but not realizing like that the percentage of calories they they might represent in someone's diet would be like 0.0000001 or something maybe 0.0000000002, but not usually very much, right? Right. So if you're like, wow, what's it look like at 10%, 15, 20, 30, 40, can I get 50? Can I get 80%? Like how much wild food could I actually eat? Not because, and I want to be clear, not just because I think this is a superior food, though I do think that, um, not just because I think this is a way to stack I guess this brings us back to the, this might be a good direction for some of what you wanted to talk about before is how it allows you to stack a lot of practices. Um, right. Yes, it does. And I think that we can circle back to that in a moment, but not just for that. Like truly for me, James, it's like, because it's unexplored, because we don't know what it looks like, because anybody who's been doing it up until now have been relegated to relative obscurity so that I'm not saying like, Hey, look at me. I'm the first to do this. I'm saying like, Hey, I'm putting it out there because it's not really out there right now, not in a big way. And there are some other folks out there I can think of who are doing a lot of it. And uh, I really appreciate their work too. I think we're all colleagues in this thing, but um, I think that this is, this is the exciting frontier for me personally. And I think, while it's not something that everybody in our community has access to, I think it, it, it's a, an important avenue of exploration for us. I think for people like yourself and me who do things online too, it gives us a certain level of sovereignty, right? It allows us to kind of go deeper into the practice of rewilding. And that's just one of the reasons why I was asking some of those questions because I know a lot of people, um, they're looking for more ways to free themselves from quote unquote, you know, the system or whatever you want to call it, you know, just to give themselves more time and freedom to kind of do what they want. And, you know, being an entrepreneur is one of those ways and especially doing it online because you're, you're doing it in a way where you can leverage your time a lot better. And that's one of my goals. And I really respect that you do that, that uh, you're able to hire people and they're able to work for themselves basically wherever they need to work and they're able to pursue what they love doing. I think that's, I really, really love that and hope that I can do that for Ancestral Health Radio sometime. But do you ever have people come up and ask you that question? Like, how do you create more time for rewilding in your life? And, and is there a call? Oh, my goodness. I mean, Arthur Haynes and I recorded a show this week called Is Wild Food a Privilege? I just got finished listening to it. Oh, you listened to it. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was two that for me, I can't speak for Arthur. Um, his brain is so much more sophisticated, I think, than my own. And it's like, I, 
you know, I would hate to try to put any words in his mouth. So I'll, just speaking for myself, for me, that podcast was twofold in its, in its goal. It was like a two pronged idea because one side of it was dealing with this idea of privilege in general, because um, right now we're at this time in history where everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else talking about how privileged they are and not realizing what a privilege it is to just go around accusing everyone of having a privilege. It's like who has got enough time to go around and accusing everybody else, go around accusing everybody else of privilege, except people with tons of it. Right? It's funny to me. So I think like I wanted to sort of say it because of that, uh, which is not to try to take away from the actual issues around privilege, which I think do exist. But I just think that we've gotten a little bit. Um, we've gotten out of our minds right now culturally the other side of it was because of how often people go i see that you hunt and gather like that um but that's not something that i can do because i don't have the time or the Mm -hmm. space i have to work now that's a whole different kind of privilege that's a whole different thing um and i think worth talking about um for me and just for people listening who don't know me or maybe because i don't share a lot about this all the time but i come from a pretty you know i guess rough and traumatic background um, I was out on the street at age 12 and my mom was a single mom with pretty severe mental illness. And, you know, my father abandoned our family and my mom's entire family abandoned us too. And, and, and my father's side also, um, and, you know, a lot of drug abuse in the home and a lot of, um, you know, police contact and, mm-hmm. you know, lockups. And I, I personally got to, as a child, like visit several different lockup facilities, both psychological and uh, criminal. Um, so I, you know, I've been through sort of a hellish childhood in the, as much as any American kids, you know, life is going to be hellish. I understand that in parts of the world, right. these things are, are much more routine, but all in but context, it is all yeah. In context. But I, but I say that not as a, you know, request for, for, you know, a violin song, but just to say, to go from that, you know, and I've worked shitty jobs and I, and I understand what it's like to have no free time because you're just trying to make ends meet. I get all of that. Um, I do think though that we live in a, in a time of tremendous opportunity. And, and I personally think opportunity is a better word than privilege in a lot of these cases because you, or if we want to use privilege and by it indicate that these are opportunities you've seized, like a privilege in the sense that is it a privilege for me to eat wild food? Well, I get, or to do, to have time to rewild. Is that a privilege of mine? Well, if so, it's one I've earned because I've worked really, really diligently and it's taken me many, many years. I didn't start out with all this space in my life to do these things. You know, I had to work for it and it took me a decade to build the systems that I now use to do that. Um, I have a great staff and a loyal staff and that's not easy to build. Um, that's right. one of the hardest things that you could ever do. Believe me, that is hard to do. It is oh, just I, I believe it. I think not. Well, I don't mean, I don't think that me. you don't believe it, but, <laughs> but I, I just, you know, finding people who, who are competent is difficult enough. Finding people who are competent, who don't have a goal to, to use you as a stepping stone immediately is even harder. Mm-hmm. So in other words, people who are kind of loyal to the cause and want to hang out for a bit and do the work with you, it's really hard. Uh, finding uh, people who you just jive with, who have those other qualities. I mean, it's just not easy to do. Uh, developing a, a business that's viable, that's also pretty challenging. You know, you got to find a niche where you have a product or service that's wanted by people. 
Um, you've got to do it in an environment where um, there's a tremendous amount of regulation um, and that's challenging. Um, so all those things, like it takes a long time. So, so I get that if somebody like logs onto my social media and goes, wow, I wish I had the time for that must be nice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, <laughs> it is nice, but you know, you, you have to work for it. And so I think a lot of people who are going, wow, I'd like to do that. It's a tough pill to swallow to accept that maybe it's going to be five or 10 years before they can do that. Right. The most important thing, and maybe it's just like, okay, but in the meantime, I can get out and do a little of this and a little of that. Everybody's got a little free time, right? It'd be <laughs> ridiculous to act like we don't because oh, they got time to be listening to this. They got that well, time they could have been outside. But, but I do think like, um, it's important to point your ship in the direction you want to go, even though it may take a long time to get there. And that's one of the hardest things for people in the modern era, because right now there's this cultural idea that you can be anything, do anything, have anything right now, mm-hmm. right now, even though at the same time, there's this competing idea that, um, y- you know, it's all privilege and it's all like, you're supposed to feel guilty about that too. But, but anyway, I mean, everybody thinks like, um, you know, you, you, I don't know, it gives the impression that you just stepped out and you just got it all. It's like, no, there's a lot of work and and very few people are willing to do that. (laughs) Well, you know what I think is funny is a lot of people have that, (laughs) that idea or that image looking from the outside in. What they don't see is what you said, the struggle and the work that it took to get there. What people don't understand is that it took five years for me to launch Ancestral Health Radio. You know, this was five years in the making and several failed projects. Later. I was going to say, probably failing in a bunch of things. Oh, I mean, it's just over like and over fail. again. All yeah, right. it's, it's over and over and over again. And so for people looking out, they just see the success. You know, again, they only see the highlight pictures, as people like to say, you know, and especially on social media. And, you know, to speak about the privilege thing, the only thing that I really want to say about that is that, you know, I think there are two sides to the privilege argument, you know? And it's one that you're, you're talking about and like there's a privilege to do this or that because you live in, you know, uh, you know an economic era or, or, or location where you're able to do certain things. But then there's another like psychological or mental privilege. So for me, for example, it was brought to my attention from Aaron Johnson. This is pretty much one of the only few African-American rewilding people that I know of. And it's funny because he talks to, which is interesting, he talks to white people on how to get close to blackness. This is what he calls it. But, you know, he brings up facts like... What, what does that mean? So getting close to blackness, getting closer to black people or including people of color is... Ah, is okay. Right. Not, not, try, not saying that they should be trying to get blackness in themselves, but... The, no, no, uh, no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> not, that's not something I've been hearing. That's been actually one of these like headlines circulating is, you know... Anyway, so that's interesting. Okay, oh, carry on. Yeah, and so one of the things, and you mentioned, you know, access to land and that a lot of land is private and that, you know, it's funny to think that there are maybe seven white individuals that own more private land than the entire African-American population in the United States. So when we're talking about inclusion and wanting to have people enjoy ancestral health or rewilding or whatever, you know, there is a certain privilege, I guess, to being white. You know, um, like, for example, if I were to wait, 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 James. Yes. The privilege to being white or there was a privilege to being right. Well, no, I I think that has residual that has there's residual momentum to there is the last president of the United States was black. No, totally. Absolutely. I mean, we're evolving and moving forward, but there's still like this tremendously more in this country than anywhere in the world. I mean, where in the where in the world, where in the world? 
does anybody have the opportunities that they have here, no matter who they are? Oh no, I how is it not like disempowering to to almost like? So I just think what what what's happening here is really disempowering. I just think it's really disempowering because while I have maybe some of those residual privileges, I also was like I. I I don't go around telling people how privileged they were because no, no, they had a they got to go to a good school and their parents paid for their education or they had a trust fund or they just had a whole family with a father and a mother. I mean, there's lots of people who have who are un, in unfortunate circumstances for a lot of different reasons. But I do think right now one of the cool things about the United States that I think is because we spend a lot of time dogging the United States, but yet most people in the world who flee their countries. They want to come here. Right? So many people want to come here because there's so much opportunity here. Right. Yes. But one of the really cool things about our country is this self-correcting constitution. So one of the things I really like about it is that anywhere inequality exists, we have to fix it. We have to, that's a mandate. So while there has been tremendous inequality in the past, I mean, some of this really outrageous inequality, not unlike what's existed around the whole world though. We need to be really, clear about that. All the kind of things we point a finger at the United States for, we can find having happened all over the world. But right. that said, um, when we find inequality, we change it. And that doesn't mean there isn't residual momentum and inertia, institutional inertia. I understand that. But right now, what's really strange to me is we are attacking um, we're, and being attacked for so many things that we're actually already fixing. And meanwhile, there are tremendous problems elsewhere in the world and we aren't even talking about them. So I just think this is a little bit, you know, it just seems like a, a little bit overboard at a time where we've all, we are already working on this so much. The why, why all this like finger pointing all the time about it? Well, you know, and it's, you know, I don't think it's necessarily finger pointing, you know, like I'm not, I, I'm not, well, I mean, have you seen, have you seen, but I'm not personally pointing a finger, you know, yeah. there's not anybody personally pointing a finger at me or anything like that. It's simply me just acknowledging the fact that, um, in certain cases, uh, I, you know, I feel I might have an advantage and do you ever have a disadvantage? Cause you have like plugs in your ears. Um, absolutely. But you know what? Um, I've, that was a choice that I made for myself. You know, I, I was born white. I didn't really have a choice in that matter. So I, I also would you, understand would you, that. Would you choose differently? Uh, no, absolutely not. I, I understand that I have an advantage in that I, again, like I, I understand, but I'm also mixed well, race. I, I, and I don't know, mean like, for, I don't mean for advantage sake. I, I, that's not what I mean, but I just. Cause well, I, no, I, I, I wouldn't No, I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm mixed race. I'm, I'm Caucasian. I'm Irish and Hispanic. And I, you know, I honestly wouldn't change it, but the, I'm the only point that I was trying to make is let's just say it's just us and we're out forging and we're on some unmarked private property and it's me out there forging something and we come in contact with the landowner. It might be different if that person was a person of color, you know, definitely could be, definitely could be depending on where you are. That's all I'm saying. And that's a a point of privilege. And so I, I just, you know, that that's something that I didn't hear you or Arthur mentioned. Yeah. Okay. But if you were in a, in an all black neighborhood, right. Uh, could you see circumstances in which you go to a place and you're discriminated yes. against because yeah, you're because white? I'm a, because I'm a minority. Right. So you could end up, yeah, exactly. So you and a, and a, and a person who's black go into an area and that person has privilege that you don't have. I mean, I'm just saying like it's very relative 
this is very, very relative because both the black person and the white person in the foraging context, you said, have tremendous privilege over somebody maybe in another nation where they have even less privilege, right? right? So yes, you might have more privilege than I guess in this particular instance than another person, but it's still relative compared to a person who lives in Papua New Guinea, right? It's like, like still, it's still relative to somebody who's in the sex trafficking world. I mean, we're talking about Right, but I, know, I, I, I think that this is very divisive, this stuff. That's the problem I have with it. I, I, very, I totally understand that, divisive. but it's, it's one of those topics that I feel are, is just, you know, if it's being talked about a lot, well, then it needs to be discussed and hashed out in a way where everybody can understand it. Right, exactly. That's, that's yeah, exactly. But, but the thing that's really interesting is there's, there's, a, there's one side of the conversation that's not really allowed to be had. And that's, what, that's why it's like... Because it's interesting even now, like how I feel like you getting triggered about it, but it's like this, this side of the conversation is not allowed to be had. It's being suppressed. Anybody who's saying, hey, isn't that also inequality? Isn't that also, isn't this getting a little aggressive and racist and sexist against a, another group now? That, that is being, that, that side of it isn't really getting heard or being allowed to be aired. So it's not really like an equitable conversation. I think what we should be focused on is equity and egalitarianism. And there's, unfortunately, we're not. And that, and to me, that's the only rewilding perspective. But I, I, you know, it's interesting because you talked, you started off sort of talking about the bio, the biology of all the the biological psychology and evolutionary psychology of all this. Mm -hmm. That, unfortunately, no one dares to touch. And I won't, I won't touch it today either, but. But I mean, until we touch that part of this, it's, this is a pointless conversation because there are evolutionary biological underpinnings to why all this stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, it's so taboo that, you know, nobody- I know, it's a super difficult conversation to have. I totally understand. It's, it's very, you know, it's triggering. And that's the, I mean, that's the most difficult thing I've realized about doing this work or taking on this type of work is- you know, the type of vernacular that you need to have, or at least, uh, you know, I heard in your last podcast, you know, that when you're online, you feel like you need to walk on eggshells. Only in the last last three, four years, man. I mean, this is new. This is all very new. Why do you think that is? Because the United States is in a civil war. We'll we'll look back on this time in history and we'll say, oh, we were in an information-based civil war. And everybody was, you know, cause you ever think about like the civil war, the physical civil war that took place in the United States. And you hear that one of the most common, like sort of memes is like brother had to fight brother, <laughs> you know, cause they were on one side of the line or the other. Um, and I think that we're seeing that right now. And my, my take on it and why, cause I understand a lot of people are going to hear that and it's going to, what I was just saying and be like, Oh my gosh, he's so bigoted. It's like, no, I believe me. I'm not bigoted at all. I really, really truly believe in equality. I do understand that, that it's like we're all on a starting line and that a whole bunch of people have certain advantages where they get to start beyond right. the start line. Right. And a whole bunch of people actually get disadvantaged and they have to start behind the starting line. And then a lot of people are just on the starting line. I think if we looked at those starting lines where everybody was positioned, we would see that color did influence that in in some places Mm -hmm. for sure. But there's a lot of other factors too. And I just think like the answer to it 
isn't going around putting everybody in a whole bunch of categories and drawing attention to that. I really think that the answer to this is making the focus equity, just making the focus egalitarianism and dropping this, just dropping all this racism. I mean, there's just right, right now what we're seeing is sexism under the guise of not being sexist. We're seeing racism under the guide of not being racist. We're seeing classism under the, it's like, it's just so nauseating, but it's part of the civil war because one side of the civil war that's taking place is very, very invested in identity politics. And um, it's gotten to where it's dominating. I don't, I don't even personally think this stuff is, like here we are talking about rewilding. This isn't even a conversation. It's really about that. Like, like it's in, and why I say that is because it's gotten into everything where you can't even, like every field is being touched by this now. And why? <laughs> what does this have to do with like a conversation about hunting and gathering that we have to have a conversation about race? Well, and we haven't yet, but sex, it's like, it's like, it's touching everything, dude. Well, no, and I, I, and I totally understand and I, I get where you're coming from, but for me, I just, it's like a big mission of mine for inclusion and diversity. Yeah, me, me too, dude. Me too. Within, me too. <laughs> well, no, 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 right. And, and I'm not speaking for you. I'm just, I'm just saying that, you know, I think it's really important that we include as many people as possible. And, you know, so, so here's what, here's the thing though, dude, the idea, James, that it's being exclusive to talk about going outside and harvesting free food is so obnoxious because this is a practice that until recently, only the poorest, most disadvantaged people in the world did. And now it's getting flipped around. that It's like exclusive somehow. And here's the other really interesting thing to me. I don't do this to exclude or include anybody. Really, I'm just out doing it because I like it. And then right. like criticize, getting criticized for that is like, wait, what? Go criticize people who like to fly model airplanes or then criticize people who like to ride horses or criticize people that, you know, like to spin records. It's like, these are all just hobbies that people have and like trying to make it about race or try to make it about social class to me is like, is, yeah, is like, I'm not saying you're doing that, but I culturally it's happening and it's like desperate. I think there are different areas, I guess, of the rewilding community. I hear you mention it all the time. You know, there are people who are into primitive skills. There are the people who are into biohacking. There are people who are from the paleo community, so on and so forth. I hear you mention social justice warriors in your podcast sometimes. What's your thoughts about people who fight for social justice? Oh, well, those are different. I think we're talking about two kind of different, different things. Um, people who believe like, can you, can you define the terms? Because this is a landmine, a field of landmines that I'm, I'd be walking into. So social justice, um, let's just say, for example, um, I don't know, land stewardship or, um, participating in rewilding actual spaces or things beyond personal rewilding, I guess you could say. Oh, well, see, see now, James, look, man, I mean, come on. You almost just led me into talking about a completely different, those are, that's, I wouldn't even have thought you meant that. Because when you say social justice warrior, that brings, that calls to mind a completely different set of values than people who are trying to create rewilding spaces, you know? Of course, I think that's fantastic. I, I hope that people do all those things. That's, that's great. That's great, important work. That's not my work personally, but I, that I, I just, there's lots of important things that need doing and I'll do the thing that I do. And I think those are really important things that you just mentioned. 
Sorry, I didn't mean, I, and I'm not, I don't mean to like lead you into anything. Well, not, I mean, James, think about it. Like, what, what is the term social justice warrior call to mind for you? People who are out trying to create rewilding spaces or people who are setting well, be, cars on well, fire? And I have, no, not at all. I mean, there's. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think it calls to well, mind the image? Well, I mean, that's just like. That's just burning cars now? You don't think? No, man, that's like. You don't <laughs> think that a lot of people would picture like Antifa rallies and stuff like that? Um. Not necessarily. Do you, would, do you think the term social justice warrior would make a person think about somebody who is interested in transpersonal rewilding and rewilding spaces? Well, yeah, because I have friends who care about social justice issues. I just wanted to know, are you doing anything outside of the Rewild Yourself podcast to protect wild spaces or lands? No, that's not, that's not like not my, well, I mean, I, I run low, I run findaspring.com, which is the database which of spring, right? So that's like an important outreach to me to, you know, but I don't go beyond that to like trying to protect those springs. You know, I leave that to the folks who use those springs to do that. I mean, that's not my personal mission. And uh, no, I'm not involved aside from, you know, contributions that I make to um, conservation groups and things like that. I don't personally work. I mean, I'm pretty busy. I run a, you know, a a nutritional supplement company. I run findaspring.com. I run my podcast. I do my hunting and gathering. So um, I don't, I'm not involved in social programs, if that's what you're asking, or or political programs, no. Right, okay. Within the rewilding community, who are some of the people that you admire the most, aside from Stolon, the master of plants? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I think, you know, the people that I've had on my show, I think, speak to the people who've most inspired me. I mean, I think I've done about 175 episodes now. And, you know, most of the people who I'm inspired by are not people who identify with rewilding. It's, you know, more folks who are specialized in their field who I think, because to me, every field touches back to human biology. I mean, not every field, almost every field in some way does. And so when I find people at the top of their field, I get tremendously inspired by their work, whether or not it's directly about rewilding, because usually it's not going to be. And again, like I'm not really into cannibalizing. Like I'd rather look outside than inside for the people who inspire me. So um, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm massively inspired by people inside the rewilding community. I'm just super glad everyone's doing what they're doing. But I think my show list kind of speaks to the people who've really impacted me. There's some characters who who I, again, don't, don't necessarily have anything to do with rewilding in a direct way, but have just profoundly affected the way I see the world. Steven Jenkinson comes to mind, somebody I've had on the show that just like really, really impacted me. Dan Flores really impacted me and his understanding of the um, bigger picture of the North American landscape that I forage on. I mean, that just really, really like opened my eyes to some things. Um, so, you know, it's just characters that I bring. Gabor Mate is somebody who lately I just, mm. his, you know, I've got to have him on the show and his, uh, you know, you, you and I were talking earlier about sort of addiction and yes. that. And I live in a place with a very, very serious opiate problem and, um, you know, lose f- friends from my childhood pretty routinely to it and uh, have, have had it dramatically impact my life. Um, and that's been a really valuable download the one that's come from Gabor Mate about addiction. Um, so all those things, again, I don't, I don't, as somebody who's been very vocal in the rewilding world, I don't spend a lot of time like watching and reading what people are talking about inside the rewilding world. Um, I spend my time um, looking for new stuff to bring into that world. 
so if that's what I mean by cannibalizing, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but I mean, I don't, I'm not turning inward to the community to find my inspiration. I find my inspiration from outside the community and try to bring it in. And, and that's why I, one of the reasons I do that show. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, is, so you would say that got Gabor, Gab, Gabor Mate, is that how I'm saying? Is yeah, that? Yep, 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 Dr. Gabor Mate. So yeah, I saw his TED Talk and I listened to um, your excellent episode with him. I'll link to that in the show notes. <laughs> it was excellent because he, he sort of, you know, sometimes on my he show, it. he flipped yeah. it on you, right? Yeah, sometimes on my show, I'll let people just sort of tear me up a little bit. You know, both of the people I mentioned, I think I met, Neil, Neil Strauss did that to me too. Um, you know, Neil Strauss, Stephen Jenkinson and Gabor Mate are, are three people I can mm. think of who've come on my show and just flip the tables. They start to almost do like a therapy session on you while you're, right. interview, you're trying to interview them and they're making, they're interviewing you. And by doing so, we're giving insights into how your psychology is set up and where there's sort of flaws in your worldview or, or trauma that you're operating from. Um, to me, that's like really, really powerful stuff. So yeah, his, his show, hopefully it's valuable to other people who listen to it. But I mean, sometimes you do those shows and they're more valuable to you, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I did an episode with the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, um, Aaron, and that's kind of how that who turned is out. Um, Aaron Johnson, the gentleman who works uh, with trauma and blackness, is as he would call it. Oh, you! I don't know that you ever finished your thought to him. What he had? I mean, I'm kind of I'm really interested in hearing what he had had said. Basically, not that we need to go back into that territory. But right, no, no, I, no. But but basically, all his work is, and it's kind of hilarious because um, after that interview, which hasn't been aired yet, but uh, after that interview, it was funny because uh, we were talking, and he did kind of that what you just mentioned, he kind of switched the tables and he kind of turned it around on me and asked, started asking me questions and uh, it got really vulnerable, you know, and I think those are some of the best episodes because it really allows people to see who you are. And, yeah. and th those are like the most powerful. And so his work primarily deals with allowing people to look past their cultural blinders, primarily white people is who he deals with. And when I said, can I join one of your classes? Cause he was going to have a workshop in Oakland up here. He's like, Oh yeah, sure. That would be great. You're going to be the only white male there. And I was like, really, I'm going to be the only white, white guy in the room. And he said, yeah, you're, it's going to be a full of white women. And he just kind of laughed. <laughs> like, James, you don't understand. That's, that's really fun. I like that. Yeah, he was like, James, you got to understand, you are like very rare. There are very few white men who would be interested in going to a workshop and getting close to blackness, as he calls it. And I was like, wow, that just, just one of those things that were really kind of shocking to me, you know, because I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. But whatever, like you said, we are in kind of like this weird civil war political correctness, weird time right now. So yeah, yeah. And let me be clear on that too. I want to just make sure I'm, I'm very clear because when we talk about black and white, I, I want to be very sensitive around that. Like I want to make sure that it's clear. I don't mean a civil war that has anything to do with race, though racial tensions have been woven deeply through it. Right. Um, but I, I think this is more um, a civil war between two ideologies that aren't compatible. And, on, and, and the trickiest part is they've been associated with right and left politics, which I think is, uh, is not accurate, but they, they've assumed the um, vehicle of those two political parties. Mm. Uh, but in the past, those two political parties both shared a goal and had different views on how to get there. Now they actually have two different goals 
And I think that's why there's these fractures. And I think what we're going to find is there's going to be people of color on both sides, and there's going to be people of gender on both sides, and there's going to be people of every type of orientation on both sides. So I just want to be clear about that, that, mm-hmm. that I'm not making that a, 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 that's not a racial commentary that I was making. And right. I just want to be super clear. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at ancestralhealthradio.com. Yeah.